Coming up next, the booking reads The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Why do I always get the books wrong when I do this? <laughs> Welcome to part two of our discussion about Huckleberry Finn. I'm here with Brandon Chastine, the PhD ABD, and Jake Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. And we're just going to jump right back into it. Let's go on a journey with Huck. But first, I thought, let's just get it out of the way. You guys, just let's get it out of the way. Okay. Um, I thought, I don't want to talk about it later, so let's just talk about it now. And I don't want to not talk about it because enough of the world is talking about it. People have released, there is a version of Huck Finn called the hipster version where they replaced the word with hipster, and supposedly it's the coolest version of Huck Finn that you can get. There are expurgated versions where they actually remove the word, and yep. they, they do these convoluted, you know, I remember when the, that edition came out a couple of years ago, there were people of real weight and consequence that were praising it, which I just thought were, was ridiculous. I, I feel like every couple of years I see another news article about this book and about how, should it be part of the canon, should it not? And it's all because of a little word. I don't think it should have the power that we can't say it in talking about it. It's the word nigger. What do you guys want to say about the backlash? The backlash against this book because it has the most horrible word in the English language. First of all, it's an I know awful it's word. F- it's a hateful word. It's been used hatefully. This is the fifth most censored book in American history, I think. Really? Yeah. Right up there with some ones that probably deserve to be censored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what better way to see the self-righteousness of the liberal left than in the way they treat some of these books? I mean, good grief. Come on. They're turning on it's one just, of their own. It's just stupid. I mean... Grow up. Yeah. I read the book, like I said, 10 to 12 years old, and I never used that word. I've never used that word in my life. In a, well, uh, I have a friend that's a school teacher. He's all of our friends, and I think he tried to teach this book with his junior hires. And oh, he yeah. he thought it was awfully... He wasn't quite sure when I talked to him. I never followed up with him, but he wasn't quite sure what to do with it. He thought it, he thought it was pretty weird that reading out loud, he was going to have to read this word to the kids he wasn't sure whether to have them read it out loud and he had to think about what he would have done if there had been a black girl in the class i don't think there was at the time and whether that would have made a difference so uh what do you tell him what a great opportunity what a great opportunity to have a conversation about where we've been and where we've come from and how we ought to love each other i'm sorry i don't have a lot of patience for the conversation for whether or not to use the word it's a part of our past. It's a yeah. part of our history. I it's guess the I mean, way things were, and it was bad. Yeah, it was awful, yeah. yeah. And if you don't want to use the word and you don't want to want to talk about it, then you don't. You lose the opportunity to condemn it. I'm just playing devil's advocate. There, there are people that would say it's a much worse word now. That One of the things I read in this, the reason that we shouldn't read Huck Finn is because the word was not, in fact, as incendiary or as hateful of a word back then, but it has grown in its power. And it's not Mark Twain's fault necessarily, but the book is playing with fire that he didn't necessarily anticipate because the word has all kinds of meaning now that it didn't then. No, I'm with Jake. I think that I'm with you guys. It's too. a good opportunity for the teacher to talk to the students. Mm-hmm. And it's a word that's been loaded with such political self-righteousness. 
that, I don't know, every two years, some other high schooler comes out and becomes a crusader for getting it out of their school because they see the word and they think it's awful. And then the school will pause and all the people will come and they'll have this great dialogue, you know, I'm putting quotation marks up Mm. because that's just a stupid word anyways, but they'll have a dialogue about race and sympathy. And I guess the only argument that someone could make would be, well, then with a gangster movie or a gangster book, do you let your kids read? Well, of course you want to let your kids even read it, but would you want them to cut out all the F words, right? Because that is, that's the way they speak too. But what would you say to that? Why are you reading mobster books? That's a good, that's a fair argument. That's a fair argument. Yeah, that's what I would, that's the one argument that comes to my mind. Right. How about you read good books? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what this you say. Is, this is a good book. Yeah. Uh, this is a good book and people who dismiss it simply because of its use of, of a word are uh, stupid. <laughs> and there's a whole weight that that word has that's just, well, it's like transgender You have bathroom. to be able to teach kids to deal with the moral complexities yeah. of life. You have to be able to teach kids, you can't shelter kids unless you want them to grow up to be precious Emory students or whatever who get offended at sidewalk chalk. They get offended at this word but are completely okay with transgender bathrooms. It's a way for people to let everyone know completely where they are politically, completely where they are as an enlightened American human being. And it's just, yeah, I don't have any patience for it either. I feel like it's a little bit like the discussion we were having a few episodes ago about when we were talking in general about discernment with the sex scenes in for whom the bell tolls. We were talking about the different ways that people try not to have discernment. And uh, one way that they do it is by just drawing arbitrary lines in the sand and saying, well, I never do that. So therefore I'm holy. And I think this is an extreme example of that where it's like, well, I don't read books with that word, with the N word. So I'm good and my kids are good and we don't have to think about our Which own being translated anymore. is I'm immature and I will never grow to have a mature ability to understand yeah. or engage with it's very questions disheartening when you – yeah, that's the real thing is, is people don't actually want to deal with questions of race. This book forces you to actually deal with it and actually think about it. And maybe there are ways that Mark Twain fails, but you, you, don't, you won't even get an opportunity to th- engage with those if you just ban the book simply because of the language that it uses. Yeah, and the use of that one word – perfectly presents to the reader the race relations at the time. The, this word was used to refer to these people, and it was a casual word. It was the word that everyone said. It was denigrating. It was denigrating, yeah. It was meant to be denigrating. Dehumanizing. But it was just the way that they thought. Like it or not, that's the way the world was at the time. And you see it, the awfulness of it in scenes, just like Huck's story to Aunt Sally about the riverboat. And he just casually says, a nigger died, and she says... Well, no people died. That's good. good. Right? So you understand exactly what that word means. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you see it ingrained And when he has that tension about he sees himself as stealing Jim and helping Mm -hmm. property escape. And this is a moral conflict for him. Yeah. And how can a nigger have feelings for his wife and kids? Yeah. When he uses that word in that context, he means to separate Jim the way he would separate a dog from a man. And that's the whole point of that scene. It's a great conversation to have with your kid. Yeah. And then the scene where Tom has been shot and they have that little conversation to the side. And then he says he knew that Jim had white in him or something, mm-hmm. right? Right, yeah. And so, I mean, Twain is, he's really kind of, he's using that word to really masterfully show you mm-hmm. the stupidity of it. And he doesn't let you off the hook the way that a modern author would by having his hero 
not use that word by having his hero be above it. He doesn't give you that smug out of letting your protagonist just be above. There's no exposition. There's no – you just have to deal with it. Right. He there is, it is, and it's awful. He's in the Matrix just like everyone else. Right. <laughs> and even the most innocent boy is going to have the blood on his hands of yeah. this awful th- sin that our country was guilty of. And think about reading it at the time. He's just rubbing your nose in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's just rubbing your nose in it. And you see the people who hated it at the time. It was those libraries. I mean, these New England uptight people, Louisa May Alcott, really hated it. Which is, That's well, interesting. Yeah, yeah, boy. yeah, boy. Let's not talk about her. <laughs> um, maybe we will one of these days. Jake, if Peter reads this book when he's 10, will you feel like you need to talk to him about that at all? Or I'm not sure how I would, how would approach it. I don't know about setting it up for him, but I want to talk with him about it. I do think it is foreign to them, like when we watched the movie. Jack didn't understand why all these black people were having to work in the field and being whipped. And so it was just completely foreign to them because they grew up with friends and people in their life that they respect. And they're just other people. So it's weird to them. And so, yeah, I mean, I would talk to Elliot about it, too. Yeah, I mean, one of the people my son respects most in the world is a black man. Yeah, He's assistant principal at his school. He's a man of high stature in our church. Yeah. It just, I don't understand. I don't think that it would occur to him. But even given that, it doesn't do your son any good for us to pretend like he doesn't come from a heritage with oh, all, exactly, everything yeah. in this book in it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it shows you the awfulness that we come from and what happened in the South was really awful. And what happened in the North, the way that people saw the freed slaves was really awful. Mm-hmm. America at the time, it was, well, it was awful. Right. You know, and it's not helpful to pretend like it doesn't, it didn't happen. Well, I think that's everything that needs to be said about that. I thought we'd spend the rest of our time just kind of traveling down the Mississippi with Huck. Jump on our raft here. Jump on our raft. Uh, Let me get out out my pipe. Your pipe. First of all, does anybody want to say anything interesting about the first sections of the book before we get onto the river? I found myself a little impatient with those, personally speaking. I was especially impatient with once we get off the river, but I was also a little bit impatient with before we got on the river. Yeah. With just with Tom again, it's like Tom's lame. Yeah, that's where you had this band that he made up, right? Yeah, not the musical band, but right. the <laughs> band of robbers, band of robbers, and uh, I guess so far as setting up for what will come in the last chapters, you don't get much better than that because no. part of this is Huck slowly growing out of his, I guess, infatuation with Tom and his imagination because he's frustrated there with the lack of reality to what they're actually doing because mm-hmm. what they steal turnips they attack right? that picnic and they attack that picnic but then it's all broken up by adults and they swear the one all the kids to blood oath but then they buy off yeah. the one kid that's yeah if you think of it as having two bookends you have huck he dominates on the book when he's on the river and you have how his... long does huck actually think it is because he's got a great admiration for tom's Sense of style. Sense of style. That's what he says. And he comes up over and over and over. I wish Tom were, were here. Tom, I wish Tom, Tom were here. Tom would figure this out. Yeah. Tom would be able to do it with style. I guess I did an okay job, but it's not as good as what Tom would have done. Is part of the theme of the whole trip down the river. So yeah, right. I don't know how impatient he actually is with Tom. That's that's a good point. But he is happy when the, their gang of robbers disbands. There was a boy who got irritated at Tom, right? Like outright. But no, I think you're right. He does rely a lot on his at least his fantasy of who tom sawyer is in a strange way tom sawyer is sort of the big brother (laughs) 
fatherish figure for Huck Finn? Well, it's... but like uh, at the end of chapter two, I thought this all over for two or three days, and then I reckoned out to see if there was anything in it, and then he describes how he tries to bring up a genie, but it doesn't work. So then I judged that all that stuff was only just one of Tom Sawyer's lies. I reckoned he believed in the Arabs and the elephants, but as for me, I think different. It had all the marks of a Sunday school. So I think you do see Huck stifling in two directions, stifling under the widow and Miss Watson and their their imaginings, basically, stifling under Tom's. I mean, it did feel to me a little bit like the classic kind of beginning of an adventure novel where you start with the hero wanting something more than what he's getting. I wanted something more for Huck. I was bored on his behalf, I guess, and stifled on his behalf by Tom and by the widow and her sister. Yeah, and the very last chapter he is when he talks to Tom in private about basically saying, what in the world were you going to do? Like if we actually got this free man free, and then Tom tells him about all the grand ideas he had, and then Huck says, but I reckoned it was about as well the way it was. Huck does have this growing sense that Tom Sawyer's world isn't, I don't know, if the best world, but isn't the real world at least. Yeah. Because he gets to have all the adventures that Tom Sawyer wanted to have, and he got to meet two men who kind of were weird twists I guess we'll talk about them later. But weird play on Tom Sawyer imagination. Yeah. Yeah, they were awful. I love the way that Twain asserts Huck's voice at the beginning of the book. That the, Just the first couple paragraphs of the book are wonderful. Uh, the way that he accuses Mark Twain, the author, of telling some stretchers in the first book and the way he recaps that's just all real fun and i think was the first thing that drew me into the book you know when i read it was oh i just like this kid's voice and it's fun to listen to him talk and it's fun to be a little bit meta about the fact that there was another book and so that stuff was all real enjoyable and you get an introduction to jim Mm -hmm. that's a very strange introduction he's into magic with the hairball from the ox right which uh magic and ghosts and stuff like that that's something that a lot of the black characters are obsessed with mm-hmm. that plays a big part in the last part of the book i know that's something that irritates people too that's like a representation of them as superstitious and simple it's also sort of setting the stage for who huck is huck's just as superstitious at the beginning at least yeah and yet there is this weird dichotomy between tom the idealist and huck the realist, realist that's, yeah. that's kind of set forth in the beginning of the novel did you guys feel a little stifled by the beginning of the novel, or or am I just is that just me? I just took it as stage setting. Stage I was setting. happy for yeah. I mean, I can see it. I, and T. S. Eliot said that it seemed like he had no clue what he was writing until a few chapters in. Mm-hmm. I think more or less I was just trying to reengage the world and trying to remember what had happened in Tom Sawyer before yeah. and remember who the widow Douglas and everybody were, you right. know, in context. Yeah. But if I had to be honest about my, the way I read it this time, it was more just stage setting. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of it as being a waste of time or anything until I read that yeah. introduction. Twain had some nice satire. I mean, as much as there, there's, there's stabs against us, I guess, as Christians, but the, the widow, and her sister, I think some of his best satire of religion is there with the widow's God being one that would be totally forgiving to Huck and Miss Watson's God being one that would send Huck to the deepest bowels of hell and Huck trying to figure out the difference between the two of them. Or which providence is right. Which providence, providence is, is right. real. Or which providence is after him at any point. Just the sort of wry way that those characters are set up with tobacco's bad, but snuff is okay because, you know, of course she done it herself. Um, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was nice. That was nice. That's yeah. all I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> but then you have Huck's father show up. I think that's when the book really begins for me. 
and that section I thought was fascinating because I don't know. It's like it's horrible, but it's all done with a, it's such a lightness of touch. I don't even know quite how Twain pulls it off. You don't feel oppressed or feel like you're reading a story about abuse, but then when you step back and actually think about it, you're like he's chasing his kid with an axe, telling him he's the angel of death and getting drunk and killing him. It's just like it's really dark. <laughs> and you can tell Huck is terrified of his father. I mean, when he sees the it's a, it's a nice detail in the book that the first sign of his father coming back is the boot with the cross with the cross yeah, in the hill. That's a scary like yeah, it's yeah. ominous. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Well, you see it from the perspective of somebody who's been abused. So, yeah. of course, it's a light touch. Yeah, that's what I was it thinking. It makes a lot you of... really wonder, you know, I don't know what Twain's dad was like or what Twain's family was like but they were relatively well to do i think and twain's father was a a gentleman who died when twain was 12 and then twain kind of got thrown out into the world Um, but he had a nice upbringing until he was about huck's Huck's age age. but supposedly there were two real people in twain's life a man a a drunk around town and then a boy you know some boy that huck was based on and some man that mr finn was based on twain obviously knew these characters and you know, knew how nasty they were. I just think he captures that sense of, you know, when you're a 10 or 12 year old boy and that's the only normal, you know, yeah, that's what you know. And you find a way to like Huck always does to get by, to make your peace, to even just find some enjoyment in it, which is, which is true. I mean, Twain has more insight maybe than that's a really good point. I think Twain has more insight than a modern, like a modern author would make Huck just, be terrified or be planning his escape or the angry. whole time yep. or angry or whatever. But in fact, when you have an abusive parent, you love that parent and yeah. you have good times fishing with that parent, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you're watching it happen as an outsider, you think, oh, come on, Huck, just kill him in his sleep and be gone or, right. you know, all kinds of different things. But Huck can't do that. He's right. a 10 to 12 year old boy and he loves his dad. He's caught up in it. And he enjoys the life of <laughs> dissolution that they, you know, it's like, oh, this is nice. I don't have to do but, any of the Widow Douglas's crap anymore yeah i love that uh scene with the that was just a funny little satire of the the bleeding heart liberal judge that tries to reform huck's dad that was real funny that was good yeah yeah Yeah. you got religion right there in the courtroom or something right (laughs) and then he ends by saying the only way to reform this man is with a shotgun Um, (laughs) that was nice but then i think the story really begins with huck's escape with them going to jackson island and huck a meeting Jim on Jackson Island. And that's when we first sort of get our our introduction into Jim. And what is it? At first, it's just Jim's superstitions, um, mostly, is the the dominant. Well, yeah, you have to go. Jim has to have a journey, too. And so Jim has to be stupid and superstitious slave that comes to be humanized over the course of the trip down the river as Huck learns to see him as, uh, as more than he thought he was. Do you think that Twain makes any distinction between Mrs. Watson's heaven and hell and Jim's snakes and omens? Is there any difference in Twain's mind, or is it all just parallel con- parallel construction? Yeah, yeah. I think he sort of sets it up that everybody's got their hokey superstitions that get them through life, and I think he really means to to put Jim's right there. Part of painting Jim's as silly is really bringing uh, Widow Douglas and Miss Watson down to the same level their prayers are basically another form of magic mm-hmm. you know jim's superstition works for him and their prayers not in huck's mind and their prayers somehow work for them but it's the same as rubbing the genie lamp you see that also with the 
irony with the Grangerfords when they're coming back from church, all talking about predestination or whatever, and all these big things and brotherly love, right? It was the best sermon on brotherly love they had ever heard, and they're all wrapped up in it and talking about it, and yet they're in the middle of this <laughs> blood feud. And so, yeah, I do think part of what Twain is doing, probably intentionally on his part, is leveling everything like that, putting it all on the same level against the actual observations of a boy who sees life as it is. How much do you guys think, as we get to know Jim better with the snake bite incident, with the first thing on the river, basically, where Jim sees Huck's dead father, and as we later find out and doesn't tell him, a lot of people accuse the other, you know, obviously this this novel has the bad word, but the other reason that they accuse this novel of, in fact, being racist is that Jim is something of a minstrel stereotype. He's this scared, superstitious, poignant black guy. How much do you think that Twain is... What do you think? Do you think he's intentionally using that stereotype? Do you think he's accidentally using that stereotype? Is Twain giving into the stereotype? Is he playing with the stereotype? I think he's using this. There's no question he's using that stereotype. I think he's playing with it. And I think that he's undermining it because I think as maybe Huck is (laughs) seeing Jim through that stereotype. But Mm -hmm. we see more humanity as outsiders in Jim than than Huck seems to because we're able to think about uh, Jim and Jim having a wife and a daughter, mm-hmm. we're able to see things that are very incidental to Huck's experience as really powerful thing. Jim sitting on the edge of the raft crying. He, he's letting Huck sleep through the night. He's taking care of Huck. He loves Huck. Taking his watch and sitting on the edge of the raft crying thinking about his daughter. Those are the moments you realize that you know Jim is not even who Huck thinks he is. Well, that was an interesting thing for me was how much of the real Jim we were actually getting. And I wasn't quite sure because the way that Jim is portrayed by Huck is as a kind of a fellow innocent and kind of, you know, a buddy. But I wasn't sure how much to read between the lines and think. I mean, obviously, there's a lot between the lines, but I wondered how much Jim is, in fact, just a very caring adult and Huck completely misses it. And And how much Jim's a fellow kind of innocent along with Huck. I wasn't quite sure where the line was there. Yeah, and you, f- I, I do think you feel that tension throughout the course of the novel. I'm not quite sure, especially you know when Tom shows up and and then all of a sudden, you know Jim and Huck are both sucked into Tom's game. You know what? Because you don't know that Jim isn't secretly seeing it all from an adult, adult perspective, right. and we just don't get it. You know, there's a sense in which we sometimes get the sense that Jim is really watching out for Huck and taking care of him in ways that we, the reader, don't even yep. get to see that much mm-hmm. of. We only see what Huck sees. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, both a problem and a really great narrative aspect of the novel is that Twain is very committed to that perspective, and I don't think he really goes away from it much. I like that. I think yeah. it, I think it makes Jim more powerful. I think it's the iceberg theory we were, we were talking it about with, novel stronger. With, uh, does, with Hemingway yeah. last week, where if we had a bunch of scenes of Jim's family and stuff, that wouldn't be nearly as powerful than just knowing that Jim cries for them on the edge of the raft. That's yeah. all you need, and you fill in the gaps. And what you fill in with your imagination is much more powerful than yep. any scene that Twain could have given us. Like Jake said, you get these little side points where he's letting Tom, or not letting Huck sleep. And it's just, he is caring for Huck, you know You that. feel like he really is more yeah. the adult in the relationship than Huck has any he's, clue. He's yeah. the one who has a sense of the gravity of what happened the night they got separated in the fog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? He's he's concerned Huck's dead. Yeah, and Huck kind of just forgets about Jim during that period. 
Yeah, he's just like, whatever. Yeah. And he forgets Jim um, might be in trouble or might be dead. He just goes to the Grangefords and another part of the book continues. And then suddenly Jim's back. You know, so you know that Jim is looking for Huck. Jim could have just gone on without him. Yeah, a lot that happens with Jim's character that is just... You have to read between the lines. I think the part that is the most troubling as far as that goes is the ending. Yeah. Like, why does he play along with this stupid game so much? Because it's just, <laughs> just a stupid just, game. Yeah. Why doesn't he just say, yeah, we're, let's just go? Well, maybe it's because Huck sucked up into it. Maybe. The, the less noble motive that I've seen a lot of modern critics attribute it to is that Jim just realizes these two young white boys have all the power and he can't, he do, can't, anything. He can't do anything to rock the boat. He has to play along he has to play along with both huck and jim the whole or and uh tom the whole novel i don't i think the i'd like to think that, that jim's had... a little bit more noble and self-sacrificial than that but the other side of it or the other way of looking at it is that jim's just as beaten up and abused and convinced that he's worthless as huck mm-hmm. at the start yeah. of the of the book and uh, and he's terrified he's being he knows that if he gets caught that's the end for him but no there's a lot to be said for the argument that the gem we get is Huck's gem mm-hmm. and not the real gem because all these revelations that we have, the, the most powerful moments of the book are revelations about Jim and the way that then the perspective will change on Jim. So like we, the, the joke that he plays on him. Mm-hmm. And then when, I mean, these other little moments that'll happen with Jim, Jim waiting for him in that clearing and being there and. And then just the things you get about Jim. I mean, the story about his daughter going deaf from the scarlet fever. Yeah. And oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that besides, uh, you know. Every dad has moments like that. Yeah. <laughs> Where you're beating your daughter and then you realize she's gone deaf from the scarlet fever. <laughs> well, and there's a certain book that we just finished uh, with. And uh, there's a story in it about a little girl. Daddy tried. Oh, yes. <laughs> Story in it about... Uh, Available now at warhornmedia.com. <laughs> that's right. And Tim talks about how uh, Hannah, his daughter yeah. Hannah was over at a on a play date and got sent home. And he and his wife were both convinced she got sent home for being disobedient. And then that she was lying about it. Turns out, actually, she got sent home as a discipline of the daughter whose house she was at because the other girl was being disobedient. Right. How awful he felt. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, every parent has those moments. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a good that was a good scene. But yeah, and you never get the feeling that Huck completely understands the importance of it, but it's there and we we get to read into it and see. Well, Jim. you get to think about Jim sitting on a raft going down the river, and that's what he's thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While his daughter and his wife are miles away, he's sitting there thinking that poor girl, and all she knows of her dad is that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Talk about giving Jim humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are two passages in the novel that I just want to mention because they're awesome before we, before we sail away from them. I love Huck's description of a storm, the storm Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. Jackson Island. Oh yeah. That was just some fantastic writing. Uh, And then his description of going by St. Louis with all the lights and everything. Those were two really evocative moments. Those were actually the moments where I felt Twain, the author the most, like this provincial little kid really, telling me this story or is this just a great author but i didn't care (laughs) well it was just a great way of using huck Mm -hmm. to tell that was just really really cool right the scene where he had always heard there were that many people but the off the just the offbeat little illustrations or analogies that huck uses that really take you there and really paint it paint it for you just really 
Just really cool. Really yeah. well done. Let's talk about the river a little bit. Jake, you had the insight that the yes. river is, in fact, <laughs> the character, the character <laughs> in the book. <laughs> I don't know what we want to say about it. Rivers are important things in stories. Stories, dreams, mythology, the river sticks, heart of darkness. What do you want to say, Brandon? They're really important things <laughs> in stories, yeah. I mean, besides the ocean, I guess one of the most common water metaphors you're going to have. <laughs> so, as happens to be two or three of the, yeah. well, the other option, it would be a Lake, right, the lake. There's yeah. not a lot of great lake stories. <laughs> so those, yeah, those are like the romantic poets, right. all it, dream by the sides of lakes. But a river is dangerous. A river is a dream thing. A river is change. It's, yeah, it's, it's leading all, you somewhere. It's all sorts of things. It's commerce. It's danger. It's, mm. it's strength. The, it's the middle of the book. And once you get on the river, especially once they have to get and sail down the river, once Huck and, and Jim get linked up, it's just a different book. It's a different book until they step out of the river. And then it's another book again. Well, I love the narrative momentum that the river, you know, it's like carrying them deeper into the south once they miss the Ohio River, carrying them into deeper, darker places, you know, and things get nastier. And at some point, it's, it's near the beginning, the river is very malevolent. But I feel like as a character, the river even gets darker because it's just like it's no longer the escape. You know, that horrible, horrible moment when the Duke and the King make it back, you know, yeah. and get back onto the raft. No, and it's just so deflating. Well, they realize, I would say it's really the moment they realize they've gone past the Ohio and they but, see the clear and the, the clear of the Ohio and the muddy of the Mississippi. And all of a sudden the river is not taking them to freedom. It's taking them to doom or right. some unfortunate destiny that they've got to try to escape from. Well, it really feels like the classic river. I mean, it feels like the heart of darkness kind of, uh, we're going to get to the primal truth of the darkness of humanity as we, I just felt like that kind of thing. It kind of has the character of like a highway in one of these picaresque novels where a lot of the plot of the novel, but also the society, the culture of where they're going through all is on the river and the river has its own culture as well. There's some really cool, that cool scene where they're beating the tin pans and stuff Mm -hmm. to show people where they are in the fog Mm-hmm. Right, there's some neat imagery that you have that's just Hang completely related to the river culture. Even just like firing the cannonballs to try and bring a dead body up, you know, the yeah. fact that they'd have to do that every once in a while because that's how people would die and disappear. And anytime someone disappears, you're going to have to wonder if it's just that whole culture. I found myself really drawn into the novel. I think like you were talking about Jake a little bit when you read it when you were a kid, but even reading it this time, it was like for those early parts of those the book before they missed the Ohio, it, it was so picaresque and so enchanting that oh, yeah. it was you one just of those books. Lay on the raft. It's like Wind in the Willows, you want to go to you want to go to Badger's house and just hang out there. This is one of those books that you just want to hang out with. You just want to kind of luxuriate in the world and just you just want to be there. You want you want to live that life. Yeah. I really did fantasize about getting a raft and floating down the river. I really did. Mm-hmm. And I really even thought about as I got toward high school trying to find a way to take a job on a, a barge because they'd have these jobs where you'd get on the barge and you'd just take it down the river all summer. They're supposed to be dangerous jobs. One of the parts of the book that says that the clearest is when he escapes from the feud mm-hmm. and then he immediately like the way that chapter ends is he just talks about how much better life on a raft is yeah remember that he says it's uh, striking how fast he's able to yeah. recover from the horror of what just happened yeah i was powerful glad to get away from the feuds and so was jim to get away from the swamp we said there weren't no home like a raft after all other places do seem so cramped up and smothery but a raft don't you feel mighty mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft but it doesn't stay that way you're right the river 
acts as this force of it's unpredictable. It's both dangerous and it can also be this place of calm, but then it can also be this place that takes you to the unknown doom and fate. And I, I, I have trouble seeing it so dark. I, I almost feel like the river's as much Huck as Huck is the river, like as a character. Uh, I would I would say what the river is. Maybe the river is whatever you want it to be. Maybe, <laughs> oh, maybe that's, the river is what you bring to it. <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, maybe I, the way I see the river is the river is providence. The river is fate. The river is karma. The river is this driving, changing force, not for good or for evil, but just simply for... It's neutral. It's completely neutral. It's a free yeah. spirit that yeah. I think it is what Huck brings to it, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, because it's always... It's the things that are on the land that are the danger and the unpredictability. The, when it's when you get yeah. back to the river, that's when things... That's safety usually. and freedom. You're always wanting Huck and Jim to be back out on the river on the raft by right. themselves. Yeah. That's the only place where you actually feel like they're safe. Which is why it feels so horrible and corrupting once the Duke and the King, especially yeah. when the Duke and the King make it back to the raft that second time. Yeah, you feel like, like oh. that's... You feel the tragedy of it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they don't belong there. They are... The corrupting influences. Everybody on the land's a corrupting influence. Yeah. The keeping Jim and Huck from being who they were becoming when they were out on the river by themselves. And that's what happens at the end. They get off and they're going to go back to being who they were. Tom's going to come back and then, you know, Tom's going to press Huck right back into who he was. T.S. Eliot, he spends a lot of time on this river. I keep bringing this guy up. But in his, he kind of says what you said about it being the powerful force of change and inevitability and fate. But there is also a sense where it's like, it's the highway of the free spirit where... (laughs) It's it's completely away from the cities and stuff. And the mm. cities and stuff, they're on the land. And as soon as you get off the river and into the cities, that's where the corrupting influence that's of true. the things that want to prevent Huck and Jim from being free take place. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a good way to see why, like we've said, the Duke and King are so awful. They bring the sour nastiness to what Tom Sawyer, his imagination, they bring that to the river. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick, I like the scene where... They accidentally kill those <laughs> robbers on that. Uh, <laughs> I've just always appreciated about Twain that his his world has these real consequences to it, and it's a dangerous place. And yeah. uh, Huck and Jim basically steal these guys' boat, and they die. <laughs> you yeah. know, and they deserve it. You know, we, we're allowed to feel good about it because they were going to kill this guy and all this stuff. That's that is it is interesting that like in Tom Sawyer's world, you don't have death, right? Right. You, yeah, well, Engine Joe dies, right? Engine Joe dies. That's right. right. But in the parts of these novels where Tom Sawyer, at the beginning, they're not really killing people when, as robbers. And then at the end, I don't think he even sees the possibility of death actually happening. Right. He has this romantic ideal that everything is going to work out okay. While Huck sees death after death after death. They see death in the house. They see death with these robbers. They see death. With, he sees death with the feud. And it's never romantic like no. Tom wants to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sees that weird scene where there's the guy's just shot. Right. Yeah, it's just right? awful. And so death is a part of Huck Finn's world in a way that it's not a part of the bookend mm-hmm. worlds. That's interesting. It's kind of an how the other half lives sort of yeah and maybe part of the point of tom and huck for twain is that he's lived both he's lived the privileged life of tom as you said right up until he was huck's age and then he was you know, his dad died and he ended up being turned out into onto the world and yeah and i don't know where you want to where are we headed next on the river uh where do you want to go 
Well, when are we going to get to the Grangerfords? Let's get to the Grangerfords. Yeah. There's one thing I was going to say about them is one thing you see with his journeying down the river is he's kind of playing with Tom's world as the way that it might play out. Mm-hmm. And um, so the Grangerfords, they kind of live in this fantasy world. Right. And it's the these, kind of European aristocracy fantasies yeah. that Tom always loves to read about and play with. It's, yeah. it's, it's They're actually living a lot of what Tom fantasizes about. And so they have these weird ideals about themselves and this other family. And there's this noble Noblesse crisis between them. And yeah. Thing. And you see, I mean, they have this beautiful home. They have all the books that they've read. They have this daughter who lived in her gothic emo fantasy world, and they all worshipped her, right? And then you have the father who has this dignified beauty to him, and then you have the sons who have this growing dignified beauty to them, and they see the dignity in their weird feud that Huck just can't understand, you know. And Buck, when he tries to explain it to him, he's like, we just have a feud. Right. I don't know where it comes from. It's a feud. Right. Right, and they're all okay with it, but Huck sees the horror in it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even the the thing that leads to everyone's demise is this kind of Romeo and Juliet kind of windswept thing. But it just ends up in pointless bloodshed. There's nothing romantic, you know. All Tom Sawyer's done his whole life is read books where stuff like that happens, where the guy runs off with the girl and there's a big adventure. And when it actually happens, it's just as mean and petty and stupid as some grown men shooting a 13 year old boy who's you know trying to swim away or whatever it is and the deaths are ugly they all die it's like that alden poem where you die in a corner they all just die in a corner you don't there's nothing noble to it it's ugly they're riding around on horses and screaming and yelling and shooting boys and it's just it's nasty and that's the way that it plays out it's just nasty and part well, one way to read the novel is it's this tension between Tom's world of imagination versus Huck's world of just reality. Reality, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Huck sees things the way they are. He doesn't have enough faith in his own. I don't know what it is. He always is doubting himself, mm-hmm. but he's always seeing things the way they are. I think Jake's abused kid paradigm or whatever you want to say for Huck is really helpful because yeah. I think that's just rings very psychologically true if nothing else that Huck sees all this reality but he doesn't exactly know what to do with it and when his best friend tells him to do something stupid with it he does something stupid with it I do love I think especially for our world of emo gothness the the whole portrait of Emmeline the <laughs> who would beat the undertaker to the corpse so that she could write these poems about it and everything is pretty funny I don't think I'd laughed as much reading one of our bucketing books since Mary from yeah, uh, it was funny from Jane Pride Austen. Her, yeah, yeah, Pride and her poem was pretty hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> what was her poem? I'm trying to remember. Oh, it was just I don't remember. He had it in here, right? <laughs> this was the funniest. Oh no! Then list with tearful eye, whilst I his fate do tell. His soul did from this cold world fly by falling down a well. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of The Book of Ming was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by me, Nathan Alberson, along with Brandon Chasteen and Jacob Menzel. You can go to warhornmedia.com. And what kinds of stuff will you find there, Brandon? Great articles. Yes. Fantastic books. Yes. Wonderful music. Yes. Is that it? That's it. 
and more back episodes of this well, great yeah. podcast. An amazing podcast. You can also go to iTunes or whatever your podcast app is. If you want, if you are on iTunes and you want to leave us a nice rating, that really helps us out, right, Brandon? Oh yeah, it'll help us get up there and get people seeing us on their lists right. and all that stuff. You're going down this American life. Yeah, we're, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. <laughs>